right before World War II, something really amazing happened uh, in the nation of Japan. And they would end up becoming the, the enemies of the United States. Well, they, they had what they called their empire, and they didn't really have a lot of natural resources, so they started conquering territory to, to try to gain natural resources to fuel a, a growing empire. And the empire was growing, and the amazing thing was no one could stop them. If you look back in your history books, you'll see they were just conquering incredible swaths of the, of the globe in the Far East. And uh, according to the Japanese press at that time, a part of the reason they were unstoppable had to do with the emperor. Because they believed that the emperor, Hirohito was his name, was God. And, you know, with God on our side, who's going to stop us kind of thing? In reality, the, the emperor was kind of like the great Oz. And we found this out after the war. And a lot of the, the mystique and a lot of the legend about his power and, and his glory uh, had to do with them keeping up the mystery uh, about this man. Well... The United States, the Allied powers, won the war in Europe and then won the war in the Pacific. World War II was over. And um, after Japan was forced to surrender unconditionally, which is very hard for a, for a prideful culture, um, a lot of the other nations, in fact, all of the other nations, Allied nations, and I read as I was looking this over, 70% of Americans wanted Emperor Hirohito hung by the neck until dead as a war criminal. And they held him responsible. Now, General Douglas MacArthur became the, the, the supreme commander uh, put in place for the occupation of Japan, kind of the, the allied leader of Japan. And he summoned Hirohito... Not long after he set up kind of the place of his rule of MacArthur, he summoned Hirohito to the United States Embassy to kind of learn his fate. So Emperor Hirohito took off all this, you know, like splendorous emperor clothing and didn't even wear, you know, his military clothing. He actually put on a Western suit, a black Western suit as a sign of mourning, and humility, like you're going to a funeral. And he, he was taken to um, the U.S. Embassy where he found out when he arrived and had a, a face-to-face with, with MacArthur, he found out that his name was, had been erased from the name of war criminals altogether. And not only was his name erased from being in peril, But he found out from MacArthur that MacArthur intended on sharing power with Hirohito in ruling Japan going forward. So this is a big moment. And a photograph was taken with Douglas MacArthur, who was like 6'4 or something, and, and Hirohito standing next to one another right after they had kind of come to their agreement. And in addition to the 
you know, kind of the disappointment and just the, the hurting of the Japanese people in losing that war, that this moment and this photograph was where the, the image of the emperor, the great god emperor, really took a hit. And, and I read, the, the impact on the Japanese public was electric as the Japanese people for the first time saw the emperor as a mere man. Listen to this overshadowed, totally overshadowed in the picture by much taller MacArthur instead of being the living God that he had always been portrayed as being. Up until 1945, the emperor had been a remote, mysterious figure to the people, rarely seen in public and always silent. The Japanese government immediately banned the picture from being published. General MacArthur said it will be published in every single paper in Japan, and it was published. And it was shocking all for the Japanese to see that their God, the Son of God kind of God, was not anything like they thought he was be, he would be. He was a very shy and demure and, and tiny little fellow. Um, not what you think about if you if you thought about God. And, uh, I mean, not even like a Power Ranger kind of guy or anything, you know. Look, if, if you want to see this, you, you, can, you can Google the pictures of, of Hirohito and you can just see his cute little god self anytime you'd like to on the Internet. What is it like when, when God in the flesh steps out to be seen by mortal, mortal people? Not like Hirohito. That's what this text is about. What is it like when God becomes a man? Our text tells us when the Creator God became a man and lived among ordinary mortals, it was, and here's the word, glory. Today I want to talk to you about glory and grace. That's what this passage is about, glory and grace. And I'd like to read the passage, John 1.14 through 1.18, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried, This is the one whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he came before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, only God who is at the Father's side. And He has made Him known. Glory and grace. Back in verse 1, you just kind of see the, the full glory of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God 
and the Word was God. And then we learn that this, this second person of God, this, this one called the Word, created all things. And we know from Genesis that it is by Word, it was by speech that everything was created. Let there be, and, and, there, and it was. And this God created everything. And then we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, that God, that glorious Creator God, left heaven, took up humanity, became one of us, and lived among us. Now, what's really interesting here is is the word for dwelled, lived. It's not the ordinary word. Like if you were just in typical Greek language at that time, you would not use this word to say he, he lived among us because this is a word that's kind of a, a Hebraicized word. It literally means not lived among us. It literally means he tabernacled among us. Isn't that a strange way to just say he lived with us? And the word God became flesh And he tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, I'd like to take a few minutes, and I'd like for us to think together about the tabernacle in a few passages in the Old Testament and the glory of God associated with the tabernacle. We we begin with Exodus 19. If you want to turn to Exodus, you can just kind of flip with me. They're in chronological order. We begin with Exodus 19, where what we find is that the glory of God has settled upon the top of Mount Sinai, where the law will be given, as a thick, foreboding cloud. And we find that when the glory of God is settled upon Mount Sinai, there are peals of thunder and there is lightning from the cloud. The the mountain itself is shaking and people are terrified. Because of the holiness of God, because of the glory of God, as, as he represents himself with this Shekinah glory cloud, you know, no one is a, no one can go up on the mountain. In fact, right before what we're reading, it says, uh, make boundaries around the mountain because if anybody even touches this mountain, they're going to die because of how other and how glorious God is. And I read to you from Exodus 19:16. on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and, and, and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast came from the mountain so that all the people in the camp below trembled. And when Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, that's kind of scary. And they took their their place at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke to God and God answered him in the thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and there God called Moses to come up 
to the top of the mountain. I mean, is that a courageous guy or what? And so I want to move to Exodus 34. Moses coming down from being with God on the mountain. And his face is so bright you cannot stare at it without your eyes hurting, without, without having to divert your attention. Exodus 34, 9, when Moses came down, there have been a couple ups and downs in, in between here, but I want to focus on this one. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, second set, of the law in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron And all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come anywhere near him. But Moses called out to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. They literally ran away. He said, no, it's me. Come come back. And they, they returned to him, and Moses talked to them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him up on Mount Sinai, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face because it literally hurt people's eyes to look at the glory of God. Ready for this? Simply reflective glory, kind of absorbed glory from God on the face of Moses. Shocking. Exodus 40, the last one. Moses has the tabernacle built just as God commanded. And you can read the couple of chapters before to see if you want to see all the specifications for the the tabernacle. And the glory of God that is on the top of the mountain. Can you see this in your mind? And there's this little tabernacle down right outside the camp, which is next to the mountain. The glory of God leaves the mountain... And descends into this tiny tabernacle. And we read about this in Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the glory cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and he therefore was not able to go in because of the glory it's amazing stuff I mean the all fear striking all striking glory of God leaves the top of the mountain descends upon a 15 by 45 foot roughly holy of holies part of the the tent of meeting Marked off by uh, the, 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 the little room be- beside it and, and the, the courtyard behind the, the fence of 75 by 100 feet around it. And it was in the tabernacle that the glory of God was with men. And when that glory cloud would 
would move, the people would follow, but it was always the tabernacle and then the temple. It was not just a symbol of the glory of God. It was where his name dwelt. It was where a representation, a cloud-like representation of his glory resided. Okay. The glory of God with men in the tabernacle. You got it? Now you can understand the meaning of this sentence. The word God became flesh and tabernacled among us and we saw His glory. You see the meaning of that? Now, there's a little difference here than the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the glory of God is is always shrouded. Like the, the dark cloud is over the glory of God. Uh, even even in the, the tabernacle and later the temple, the glory of God is veiled. And that's the Old Testament word you read over and over. It's veiled. You can't see it. You can't be like right there in the immediate presence of God's glory. And there was this gigantic curtain that separated the holy place where the priests could go from the most holy place or the holy of holies, that small room and the, the glory of God was, was veiled. But now we read, in Jesus, the glory of God is unveiled. God became man. God, the Word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld, we saw, we saw the glory This is an amazing verse, just taking in the Old Testament and seeing what God is doing through His Son. Now you can understand the words, not just beheld His glory, tabernacling, but or not just tabernacling, but but beholding, seeing the glory. As the tabernacle was God's glory with men, Jesus Christ is the new tabernacle. The new temple. He's the connector now between God and men. He's the presence of God. It says in verse 15 that John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What? John the Baptist is declaring that Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus was born after John the Baptist. But John the Baptist says, you know, this is the one that we've been waiting for. This is the one who was before me, even though he was born after me, meaning he was God. In verse 18, we read, no one has ever seen God. Only God who is at the Father's right side And he has made him known. Only the one, Jesus, the word who is with God, only him makes God and his glory known. Now, this is not to say that Jesus' face glowed like a spotlight. This is not a direct comparison to Moses in the reflective glory of God on the mountain. No, Jesus of Nazareth was a real man. 
And that's intentional because he came to save real people. You see, we've got this problem before a holy God where our sin cuts us off from the immediate presence of God's holiness and his glory. And there's nothing we can do to reform ourselves, to remake ourselves, to try to be good. Whatever it is in your mind that you would think about trying to be accepted by God, none of it will work because of the dramatic otherness of God. And utter holiness and utter glory. And so that's why the Word, when He became flesh, really became one of us. Because He's going to represent us. In fact, Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, in verse 2, said there was no majesty about Him. That we would look at Him. There was no beauty about Him that we would stare at Him. He became one of us. When it says... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. What John, who is writing this, the the Apostle John, is saying that in our three years with Jesus, we saw the glory of God, and it was Jesus. With power to calm the sea, to heal lepers, to raise the dead, Jesus was the raw power and glory of God. They saw him up on another mountain that we now call the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw him transfigured, transformed into dazzling, bright, and shining white, like glory, like Shekinah glory. They, they kind of saw him in his glory for a moment. You know, Peter, James, and John were there, and Peter said, this is so amazing. Let's just build tents and just stay up here. When he saw the glory of Jesus. You know, when Jesus went to the cross, he said this. He said, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. That the cross, now they look back on it, and and John looks back on it, and and the cross is a glory of God, and the, the cross is how the glory of God gets to us. Because do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, the, it was dark, and just like the mountain shook, the, the environs of Jerusalem shook, and that, that curtain that separated anybody from seeing the glory of God in the temple was torn from top to bottom. It's because Jesus had released the glory of God. We can now go into the presence of God, Jesus, who is the new tabernacle. And, of course, they saw Jesus raised from the dead in a new and glorified body. And they saw Jesus ascend back into heaven. We beheld unveiled glory. And this series is called The Jesus We Need sometimes opposed to the Jesus we think we want, that we make up. But like this is what he's really like. And uh, the Jesus we need is the glorious one who is with us. So the first is glory. Glory and grace. Secondly, as this passage is about grace, and that's verse 16. For from his fullness... Think about that word, his fullness. We all have received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. 
But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You got to understand something about God. God's still three times holy and unknowable. Unless He chooses to be known. God is still that God of glory and unattainable unless He chooses to be attained and He has chosen to be known. And He has chosen to be attained. And through the Son, Jesus, who represents us before His holiness, by faith in Him, we, we apprehend God Himself. It's an amazing thing, and, and, and it is grace and not judgment of a holy God. Because Jesus became one of us. Jesus was judged and punished in our place. And when Jesus said, it is finished, what he meant was, it's finished. And all the full payment for our sins before a holy God was wiped out. On the cross. From his fullness, we receive fullness. That is grace and grace upon grace. So, remember the Moses came down with the law, and that's a big part of Mount Sinai and all that was going on. The law condemns us, but grace embraces us. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know what the law is? The law is a a perfect, inscribed reflection of the absolute, holy character of God. The law is a looking glass into the reality of the glory and holiness of God. And uh, the law is also a mirror where we see our true selves as sinners before God as we see this holiness in the law. And the law is a tutor, we learn in Galatians, for, for, for people who see their inability to totally transform themselves into acceptability before a holy God We are tutored by this law. We are broken down by this law. We see our need and we put our trust in what Christ has done through grace. Alexander McLaren, I love the way he puts this. He says, the law does not give any help at all in the fulfillment of its demands. And that's right. The law is just a reflection of God and and what godly living looks like. It doesn't help you live it. He says, the law doesn't help at all in the fulfillment of of its own demands. And I love this. And it is barbed with threatenings of retribution. Because it's God. It's holiness. Law comes down among men, he says, terrible in its purity. Awful in its beauty. Stark and imposing. The law has an or else quality about it. Grace however, is an unveiling of the heart of God. Grace is love-giving from God. Law demands, grace bestows. 
Don't you love that? Grace comes and says, I will give you what you need. Law is God requiring. Grace is God bestowing. And y'all, grace has come in Jesus Christ who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, lived a perfect life, fulfilling every dimension of the law for us and has broken the curse of the law against us by His death on the cross that literally drains the anger of God for our sin completely dry so that there is nothing but relationship now offered between us and God. This is amazing. In Jesus, in grace, God embraces lawbreakers like you and me. Law came, the law came through Moses, but grace, and, and then quickly it says, and truth came through Jesus Christ. And truth, it simply means not now, now not this Old Testament type and shadow truth of just kind of looking forward in types and shadows. No, this is fulfilled truth. This is new truth, new information as, as God himself is here. This came through Jesus Christ. Glory has come down to us and he is truth. John Piper says, receiving grace upon grace. Well, and, and when we put our trust in Christ, what we get is grace. But in verse 16, we learn that it's even better than just getting saved. You know, the chief end of man isn't to get saved. Y'all know that, right? Chief end of man isn't to get the fire insurance. Chief end of man is to be able to live with God, enjoy God, and glorify God forever. And verse 16 says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John Piper says, receiving grace upon grace corresponds to his fullness, which is infinite fullness. So, and I love the way he puts this, so the waves of grace upon grace never cease. Other scholars say it is heaps of grace. Another scholar says it is all we need. Grace and new grace and continuous grace, uninterrupted grace. I like this picture. God's grace is like a mighty Niagara thundering unendingly out of eternity into our hearts. That is something no Old Testament prophet ever imagined. But it's what we have in Jesus. Grace. Not the condemnation of law before a holy God. And grace upon grace. But you must have him by faith. It simply means trusting in him. It simply means putting your trust for who you are going to be before God, resting that faith not on your own works, not on your own goodness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
but putting your trust in Jesus who proclaimed it is finished. It is done. It is yours. He is God become flesh for us to give us a relationship with the God of glory. Grace upon grace. I, I want to end with Second Corinthians 3.15. This is a discussion about Moses and the law versus Jesus and grace and how there was a veil. The glory of God was veiled until Jesus removed the veil. Second Corinthians 3.15 Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the law is read, a veil lies over their hearts, the, the Jews. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. And we all, with unveiled Faces, behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into his same image from one degree of glory to another, grace upon grace. So let us eat with Jesus with unveiled faces, and in the grace of in which we now stand. Let us receive, brothers and sisters, new grace together today. Let's pray. O Lord, You are God. There is none like You. You are above and beyond, transcendent, holy, 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 a God of the weightiest glory that is beyond our capability to fully fathom your glory. But thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you that even today we didn't come to church to prove to you how good we are. We came here to worship you because of how good you are. We came here to seek you because we actually have apprehended you. We came here to affirm your holiness and your glory while being sons and daughters only by grace. If you've never put your trust in what Christ has done and you see it and you'd like to, Pray with me, Lord, I see it. I've never seen it like this before. And I want to turn away from everything that I've called Christianity. Everything that I've called religion. And I want to put my trust, Jesus, in what you have done for me on the cross. I want to turn away from my efforts to your completed work. Perfect work for me. I also want to receive you, risen Christ into my life. Oh Lord, I pray that you would lead me. I pray that you would give me grace upon grace. And Lord, there are many of us who've walked with you and 
And this is so encouraging to us because you want to take us back to the cool, clear headwaters of that grace. You want us to drink anew. And really you want us to to hold bread and, and the fruit of the vine. And you want us to taste and see again that you are good. Oh God, would you help us to see how unveiled our faces are? Would you simply open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus as we spend time with him? And we pray these things in his holy name.